morning. Um, we are, uh, I'm just going to make a, like a quick announcement and then we'll jump into uh, the text for this morning. So we're starting the new year. This is the beginning of the Christian liturgical calendar. I know uh, for some of you that might be new information. Others of you, you're really familiar with the liturgical calendar. But uh, this is essentially the beginning of our new year. All right. So just turn to someone next to you and wish them Happy New Year real quick. Go ahead. Good. Uh, we usually think it comes in January, but it, it, it snuck up on us, okay? So um, one of the things that we do is we, we talk a little bit about what is the importance of Advent at the beginning of every Advent season. Uh, we also do a thing called Advent Conspiracy. I just want to highlight those two things. They're uh, also in the bulletin. If you got a bulletin in the um, kind of the right-hand side of that, you're going to see a little section on Advent. Uh, One of the reasons we celebrate the Advent season around here and one of the reasons we talk about the liturgical calendar is uh, simply because I think there's a lot of beauty and rhythm. That uh, we as the church in many ways have kind of lost some of the uh, the bearings really. Uh, We've lost the idea of rhythm, of coming back to tradition, of coming back to certain seasons and certain times of the year. Uh, Most of life, as you know, operates on rhythms, right? We have the rhythms of days and weeks. Uh, we have the rhythms of seasons, uh, reoccurring holidays like we just celebrated with uh, stuffing and turkey, uh, other ones coming up. We have the rhythms of birth and life and death. And uh, the Christian calendar really is the, are these rhythms that I think the church needs to embrace deeply. Um, and in part because we, whether you grew up with the liturgical calendar or the Christian calendar or whether you didn't, Uh, There is this sense, I think, that the Christian year, uh, when we consider it this way as a church, represents this like historical unfolding of the whole life of Christ. So that every year we're reminded of his incarnation, his ascension, we're reminded of Pentecost, we're reminded of all of these moments in time, Good Friday, Easter, etc., that show us every year the life of Christ in beautiful in expressive ways. They create almost a rhythm of remembering. And uh, so this morning, what we want to do is uh, really focus on that a little bit. I wanted to read this quick uh, statement. It says this, In the course of the year, moreover, she, the church, unfolds the whole mystery of Christ from the incarnation and nativity to the ascension, to Pentecost, and to the expectation of the blessed hope of the coming of the Lord. This recalling the mysteries of the redemption, she opens up to the faithful the riches of her Lord's powers and merits so that these are in some way made present for all time. The faithful, us, lay hold of them and are filled with living grace. The idea behind that quote is that in a given year, we have this opportunity time and time again each Sunday to reflect on who Jesus is, the way he lived, the way he moved among us, His life, his death, his resurrection, and that in that we find great grace. So I'm excited about this uh, this new year together as we look at the life of Jesus during Advent and then throughout the year. I wanted to highlight one last thing, and that is um, this Advent we are focused on uh, being conspirators towards global neighborhood. So every year for the last, I think it's been eight years now, we've had a little bit of a, what we call an Advent conspiracy, a time where we suggest that you, instead of 
buying one additional gift, because we always have that one extra gift we want to get, right? It's the consumerism of our culture. Instead of doing that, set aside that same amount of money and then use that to bless an organization, a person, something that is actually doing good for the kingdom. And the organization that we're focusing on this particular year is Global Neighborhood. For those of you not familiar with Global Neighborhood, and I assume most of you, if you've been around your community for any length of time, are, Global Neighborhood works with former refugees in our city uh, to really help them with the process of getting settled, but then beyond that, begin to employ them, give them job skills and training that will enable them to be very functional in society, have uh, great employment, uh, to actually be able to have the kinds of jobs that will sustain life for them. Uh, One of the greatest needs that uh, we have found since starting it a little over uh, about eight years ago is that um, employment is huge. It's a huge factor. So while you might have an apartment, you might get settled, you might start to learn the customs of uh, this particular culture, Um, as a a foreigner coming in, one of the hardest and most difficult things is actually to find a job that becomes sustainable, uh, that you actually can learn and grow in. And and so Global Neighborhood exists for those reasons and many more uh, to really help bring holistic life to refugees. And each week, uh, from this week forward, we're going to highlight a different way that you could actually bless Global Neighborhood. You'll see them there. Uh, Next week, we're going to focus on the idea of prayer, and we're going to invite everybody before the kids' Christmas program to actually spend time with each other praying, uh, not only for Global Neighborhood, but for the refugee uh, crisis kind of around the world. Uh, The next week, we're going to talk about the idea of giving. There are ways that you can give. You can give via donations toward the thrift store that was started a few years back, or you could also give financially on like a month-to-month basis. And uh, we'll talk through that a little bit. And then the last one is eat. I know that sounds weird that you could eat for Global Neighborhood, but uh, we are going to have on the 21st a day where you can go to Chipotle and get your burrito on. And when you do that, then uh, 50% of everything that you eat will go toward Global Neighborhood, which will be uh, just a huge gift toward Global Neighborhood at the end of the year. All right? So we'll talk more about that each week, but I wanted to highlight that and uh, let you know what to expect and what was coming uh, for this particular Advent. Let me pray, and then we will jump into uh, our topic for this morning. Father, we uh, come this morning um, off of uh, a weekend that for many of us was relaxing, a time to be with family, a time to express gratitude toward one another and hopefully, most importantly, toward you. A time where we could be mindful of all that you have blessed us with. And as we come off that, God, I think it's no surprise that you have kind of set up uh, our hearts in a way to prepare us for this season. To be reminded of your once coming in Jesus, but then this idea that you are continually coming and will one day come again. God, I ask that you would help us in this season to be uh, expectant and hopeful and waiting and anticipating, um, but also that we would be open to hear from you, uh, that we'd be mindful of who you've invited us to be during this season, and that we would experience you in perhaps ways that we haven't before, or at least haven't in a long time. 
We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. A uh, little moment of confession here at the beginning. Uh, every, every year I get to Christmas, and I'll be honest, this thought comes through my mind. Uh, what am I going to say this year? Right? I mean, it, ironically, Christmas comes every year. Yes. And uh, every year I think the same thing. Like, uh, yeah, I, what am I going to say this time? Uh, there's, there's really nothing new. We've all been doing this for quite a while. And, uh, and yet, like I just talked about the importance of rhythm. I talked about how it's important for us to be reminded of these things again and again. And yet, every year I get that same uh, pit in my stomach where I'm like, man, nothing's new. We've all heard it before. We sing the same Christmas songs every year. We have the same holiday traditions. Uh, for many of us, we exchange new versions of the same gifts, right? I mean, we're just kind of in this uh, yearly thing where we, we gather with family, we remember old memories, and then we start to create some new ones. And uh, so every year, I feel the same thing, the same tension. And uh, maybe as uh, a person who speaks on a regular basis, I, I think to myself, just at least for a moment, that there's nothing else that needs to be said. There's probably nothing else that we could talk about because we all have, at some level, the spirit of Christmas kind of dialed in. At least that's how I feel. And then I come across like a video like this that you'll watch here for a second. So I see this video, and then I think, perhaps there's still some things to talk about at Christmas. <laughs> maybe, maybe there is more to be said at Advent. That maybe we don't have it quite dialed in. Now I would imagine this lady, I would imagine that she went shopping with the best of intentions, right? She probably uh, went with uh, great joy, she was anticipating and excited about what she was going to get her family, and um, I doubt that she thought to herself, I'm going to steal something from a small child this Christmas. <laughs> I, I'm doubtful that she thought over two million people will watch this video online of me stealing from a little child. I, again, I doubt that she thought to herself, someday my grandkids will watch this video and ask the question, is that really you, Grandma? I mean, I, I don't think any of those things went through her mind, but this video alone is material to at least cause us to say, do we have some things to talk about at Christmas? Have we somehow lost the plot? Because Christmas can be this period or this time where we've muddled uh, the understanding of what the season is all about. There's a bit of confusion. And if you, instead of humility... And poverty, we tend to be about wealth and indulgence and gift giving. Instead of Bethlehem being remembered, we replace it with shopping malls and traffic jams. The room at the inn is replaced with a warm house, a nice fireplace, and some food. 
The wise men get confused for salesmen. Angels are confused with reindeer. And Christmas characters suddenly become Mary Joseph and Bing Crosby. We have all these uh, assumptions about the season. And what we really end up doing is replacing the reality of who Christ is and why he even came in the first place. Now we would argue, I think, that as Christians or as churchgoers here, that uh, we have not missed the plot. That that's certainly not true of us. That we somehow have, uh, we've got it figured out. And I would argue that for the most part, perhaps we do. For the most part, we do have the right perspective. For the most part, we're focused on the right things. Uh, but as I thought about it more, one of the things that dawned on me is that perhaps in our uh, attempt to keep the season separate from Santa and all the periphery uh, that we involve with Christmas, that in some way we've inadvertently tidied up the Christmas story. What we've done is we've made it a little bit more palatable. It's kind of like, uh, you know, some of us want to drink beer, but we don't want the calories, so we get the light version, right? And they say, same great taste, but just fewer calories, right? I feel like this is the same great advent, but just a little bit less pain, a little bit less of the real story, a little bit less of everything that you would experience if you were truly there. And that's what we perhaps do inadvertently, because I think, and maybe it's just me, but we're all about that cute little nativity scene, right? We're all about the um, characters all in the right place in the nativity scene. We're all about like this, like what appears to be like a wood arbor with just the right amount of light reflecting from the star onto little baby Jesus, not some like cave where he might have been born. We have the manger all fluffy with some hay, and uh, in a small little manger, just about the right size for a tiny little baby Jesus. We have a cute sheep. Shepherds holding nice staves, all looking like well put together rather than ragged men that are constantly weathered and on a hill with sheep that look nasty and gnarly. No, we have cute little fluffy sheep. We have a donkey that kind of like is peering over the shoulder of Joseph, smiling down on baby Jesus. The same donkey that was rode for miles till that point. Uh, is that same donkey sitting there. We have these handsome, uh, maybe somewhat exotic men of the Orient, wise men, right, that uh, are positioned kneeling around Jesus, having brought all these amazing gifts and uh, showering him with praise. And this becomes kind of our version of the Christmas story. And I think we, in some ways, tidy it up. I would argue that we probably even tidy up the way we talk about Jesus around Christmas time, too. So, this Advent, our hope is to focus on the names of Jesus, but not to focus on the ones we typically think of when we come to Christmas time. We want to th- focus a little bit more on the names that are a bit more obscure, or uh, we might not have heard of, or we might want to ignore. So, let me ask you this question. Uh, What are the names that you typically or we typically associate with Jesus during the Advent season? What are the ones you hear about? Maybe they're on the Hallmark cards. Maybe they're talked about on particular Sundays, sung about. What are the words that we 
kind of associate in terms of the names of Jesus? Just shout them out. Okay, Son of God, what? Emmanuel, good God with us. Prince of Peace, Savior, Messiah, Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, yeah? Maybe you've heard that, right? Alpha and Omega, Redeemer, um, Chosen One, the Lamb of God, the Light of the World. Right? We have all these like beautiful, beautiful names. Son, Jesus, Christ, Lord. But I want to look at uh, one that's a little bit different this morning. Before we get to the Word, I want to share the story one more time just to allow us to reimagine or to rethink about what was happening um, how many of you have watched the movie Inside Out? Yeah, uh, there's some smiles. Yeah, big smiles. Uh, it, it is a, a funny and yet profound movie. I watched it the other day with my family, and uh, I mean, it, it's fascinating. But you have this character named Joy, obviously very happy, wants all of life to be grand and perfect, and I can imagine Joy telling the Christmas story, and it would be like all of the moments we just talked about. Beautiful and uh, the star shining in just the right place and all the characters right where they need to be. And then, uh, then you have sadness. And uh, sadness would probably tell the story from a slightly different perspective. And yet it would be just as meaningful. And so this morning, just imagine for a moment sadness is telling the story. And that she's wanting us to get a little bit different perspective. You have in the initial story of Christmas, and I know many of you have thought of this before, you have some pretty young kids. I mean, Mary is thought to be around 13 years old. You have uh, these young kids, impressionable, uh, like having to, to like wake up to this world that they're not prepared for and not ready for in any way. You have this rough engagement story where the two of them are apart, and yet Mary's pregnant, and that doesn't look very good. It doesn't feel very good. An angel comes to Joseph and says, hey, I want you to marry her anyway. Joseph's like, really, do I believe this angel? Do I not? Do I marry her? Do I not? He's feeling this tension. They decide that they're going to get married anyway. They have to leave for a census. It doesn't come at the most ideal time, but it's still the law. They need to go to their uh, kind of place of birth, their family place of birth. Uh, Mary's great with child. Uh, not a good time to travel, especially on a donkey. So they travel to this place where they've got tons of family connections, right? They have like all of these relational uh, like systems built up because family is there. And as we've talked about before often, family was the greatest priority for the people during that time. They placed it above all other things. And yet when they show up to town... There's no room. There's no room because they were rejected. There's no room because of the scandal of the child. There's no room because aunts and uncles and cousins and nephews and whoever was like, you're not staying with us. And so they go to the inn and there's even no room in the inn. And so they're, said, they're told, hey, there's uh, an option to hang out with some animals in the back. This is after labor pains on the donkey. This is birth in a stable among animals. There's no epidural, right? There's no nurses on call. 
This is just like the agony of childbirth with only your husband on the receiving end, right? Like, nobody else around. Like, you're just fending for yourself, cold, alone, forsaken. Shepherds are on the scene, which is weird, right? You got to admit it. (laughs) It's weird. These guys show up. You know, they're talking about angels singing. And then all of a sudden, just think. The shepherds leave. There's all of them alone. Some animals around. And then that's it. That's the story. It's done. Everything goes back to normal. At least for a while. Right? Nobody else is coming. They go back to uh, life. Joseph's a carpenter. I'm sure he's making big bucks. Right? Just bringing, bringing home the cash. Parents still look at them all around town as if they're a little bit weird, right? They know the story. They know the scandal. Mom's probably considered a little bit like a tramp. People are pointing at Jesus, talking about these things. Mary has probably told them weird things about dreams and, you know, the child leaping in the womb and like all this stuff. And they're going, you're kind of weird, and I don't care if shepherds showed up. Nobody's talked about this for two years. Like, Jesus is two at this point, or close to. And you just imagine, two years goes by, and nothing's changed. Nothing's different, right? Except you're feeding this kid, taking care of the kid. And then everybody knows you're from Nazareth, which means, like, basically you're from the hood, right? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. So you don't even have like this good place to be a part of or to be known that you're from. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, completely unbeknownst to you, it was not expected in any way, some dudes from the Orient show up. Weird, right? And they bring gifts. And they aren't just like gold alone. They're not just like, hey, here's a bunch of wealth. We're going to set you guys up for life. You're carrying and raising the Messiah. They, they bring gifts, but then they go, yeah, and this last gift, this gift is for his burial, it's for his death. Like foreshadowing that like this child who's around two, like the first, one of the first gifts we give is to recognize that there will be this period in which he will die. The angel comes says, you need to get out of here, Herod's angry, you need to run. They escape as refugees to Egypt. Thankfully, Egypt was accepting refugees at the time, right? Otherwise, they would have left Jesus in the out. Think about that. And then, after they flee, all of the baby boys under two years old are killed in and around Bethlehem. All of them. It's called the slaughter of the innocents. Mom and dad and baby, Jesus, hang out in Egypt for a season until the violence dies down, until they're told that they could come back, and then they come back to Israel. And that's when I think actually things may have gotten worse. That seems like enough of the story. That seems like it's pretty rough. But then if you think about it, they come back as refugees going, man, we're going to be going back home, and yet they're still pretty much unwelcomed. They have this refugee status with them. They're not desired in their own town. But imagine why that might be the case for a moment. 
I know you've probably thought of this, but just think. Jesus gets dropped off at a little Jewish school, right? He's of the age to be able to go and start to learn, and he gets dropped off. And think about this for a moment. He goes into class, and he's the only boy. Everyone else in the class is girls, which is like the worst if you believe in cooties. Like, right? It's like, this is bad news, right, from the beginning. But think about this. Every time Jesus goes on a play date with Mary and some of the other moms, every single time, there has to be the thought that I am missing my kid because this kid exists. Right? Every single time. Every time you see Jesus, a mom's got to be thinking like, yeah, I remember my child that was ripped from my arms and killed, right? They're reminded of the loss of their boy. Maybe they're resentful to Mary. Jesus stands out, but he stands out in all the wrong ways. And he's the, he's the only boy in class. He's the only one hanging out. And on top of that, there are many people that think that he grew up with a bit of a nickname. That he would have been called a mamzer. Now this would have been a label that would have stuck with Jesus for a while. And especially growing up in a community that understood his birth. But the first name of Advent this season is Mamzer. Mamzer, for those of you that don't know, is the Hebrew word for bastard. Many people believe that Jesus grew up having a little bit of that as a nickname. One scholar says this, One element of the text that is often overlooked is that the issue that this pregnancy invokes, the charge of illegitimacy. No matter how you slice it, Jesus' birth cannot be squared with Joseph and Mary's wedding date. It is possible that other gospel evidence suggests that Jesus was, quote-unquote, perceived as a mamzer. The conditions of Jesus' conception, as Matthew refers to them, made him a mamzer no matter what his actual paternity was. So regardless of our belief that he was born of a virgin, regardless of the belief that uh, this was all of God and that God orchestrated it, brought the two together, told them to get married, regardless of how we perceive it, perceived at the time would have been the idea. And scholars believe, some of them believe, that he would have been referred to in this particular way. Which meant that he belonged to the caste of the Mamzer. Which meant that he would have been near the bottom of the social standing. You know, he would have been actually below Gentile slaves and slightly above Samaritans. That he would have been a rejected one. From the beginning of his life, he would have had to negotiate between this idea that he belonged to the people of God and at the same time feeling ostracized from those very people. As a mamzer, you were only permitted into certain roles in the temple. You were only allowed perhaps in certain places. He would have been among the rejected ones. Even as a mamzer, he would have uh, had restrictions on marriage. Even though he didn't go on to get married, if you were a mamzer and you desired to be married, you could either only marry a foreigner, a freed slave, or someone that in some way, some other Israelite that had a grave blemish or was themselves a mamzer. He was socially outcast. He was isolated. He would have experienced kind of the label of being one of the untouchable 
and been ostracized by the elders. This is the story of Jesus. And yet, John says this to us in the text we read this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. See, what John is doing is calling us, I think, to a deep contemplation of the mystery of the Incarnation. He's asking us to consider the unfathomable reality that there is this visible expression of an invisible deity. That He is allowing us to recognize that God put on the flesh as a suit. That He chose to wear humanity. And that He entered the world as a mamzer, a forsaken one. So the question should become for all of us, why would God enter that way? Why would God come in the first place? What is it about the incarnation and what is it that we could learn from it? And what I want to do this morning is just suggest a takeaway or two that we could talk about in groups. A few things that maybe we could, we, we could wrestle with and ask questions about related to the incarnation. And the first idea is this, that the incarnation is not impressed with status but relationship. The Incarnation is not impressed with status, but relationship. See, every Christmas, people will point out the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth. Right? We'll talk every year about how uh, he was lowly, that there was uh, the manger, that there was the stable. And all. But rarely do I think we talk about the implications of his humility as it relates to the way in which we should live our ordinary everyday lives. We talk about it in theory, we talk about it being an awesome gesture of God, but then rarely do we talk about the idea that that requires something of us related to our own humility, our own understanding, everyday life. See, if God is truly human, if God would make himself flesh, then we should not be too impressed with status. We shouldn't be too impressed with wealth, beauty, or power. It should be kind of like, eh, to us. Right? I mean, think about Philippians 2 for a moment. Paul says this, Have this mind, this idea of the incarnation among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the incarnation means that this God, that had equality with God, this God who was God, was willing to empty himself of his glory, of his power, and to live humbly as a servant. He was willing to go from king to mamzer. That he went from wealth and status to being one of the least of these. That he went from being too beautiful to behold, for us to look at, to being so extremely ordinary that it's said in the scriptures that nothing would draw our attention to him. He was average. Average looking, 
probably average in almost every way we would assume as a human. Which means that the incarnation should mean that we as Christians really don't care that much about appearances. We don't really care that much about the externals. It should some ways mean the end of snobbery. I have no idea what's happening back there, but (laughs) it's amazing, (laughs) I'm sure. It should mean, really, the end of snobbery. Uh, Tim Keller said it this way, Christmas is the end of thinking that you're better than someone else. It's the end of thinking that you're better than someone else. If God, the almighty, all-powerful God, would to make himself fragile, if the person who's larger than the universe would make himself a tiny embryo, if the one who created the world with but a word would make himself dependent on a little 13-year-old Jewish girl, it's pretty obvious that status doesn't matter. It's pretty obvious that the things that we tend to place value on, especially during this time of year, tend to be the things that should easily be ignored. That the true worth of the incarnation is found more in relationship and in presence with one another and in His presence with us than it has anything to do with status. In fact, the Scriptures say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What John is epitomizing in the doctrine of the Incarnation, he does in a single word, the word dwelt. Eugene Peterson said that he moved into the neighborhood. Uh, theologians say things like that he tabernacles with us. That means that he like dwells in such a way that he sets up shop, that he becomes close, that he actually indwells us ultimately. And what it should do in some ways is convey the links that he was willing to go to to have a relationship with us personally. That if Jesus would descend all the way to become flesh and blood, if he would humble himself all the way to the point where he'd be known as a bastard. He did it to become known by us. Really, the incarnation and Christmas is all about God in some way screaming and saying, I've come here for you. I've come here to be close. I don't want to just be a concept. I don't want to just be something at Advent. What I want to be is a friend. That's our first reminder that the incarnation isn't impressed with status, but about relationship. The second and final idea is this, that the incarnation is when Christ shed his dignity so that we might discover ours. The text goes on to say this, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I mean, every time I really consider this idea of the incarnation, the fact that God would humble himself and become like us, I'm blown away by the fact that he would strip away all his dignity. As humans, I think there's this part of us that wants so badly to hold on to dignity, right? To hold on to honor, to hold on to our name, to, like, to be known as something, to, to have something to grasp onto. 
And yet he gave up his very honor. He gave up his very dignity. He endured fleeing as a refugee, living as a mamzer. Isaiah 53 said he was despised and rejected. He was hated, mocked, spit on, convicted, beaten, abandoned, naked, dishonored, and without dignity. That's the story of the bookends of his life, right? He came as that. He lived as that. He died without dignity as well, at least in many of the world's eyes. And the text says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that God who was in the beginning, that Word who was in the beginning, made Himself known to us and made us in His image. text in the beginning of the Scripture said that He created you and me and all of humanity in His image, His likeness. He created us male and female, black and white, rich and poor, old and young, smart, athletic, uncoordinated, not so smart, beautiful, and not so beautiful. All of us bear His image. And He entered this world, and He entered humanity to bring humans dignity. He brought us to our fullness He entered our world as a mamzer, but became known as a friend of sinners. He spent his life with ordinary and unimpressive people. He loved on lepers and cripples. He conversed with prostitutes and fishermen. He cared for women and children. And what he proved, and what we're reminded of this Advent season, is that no matter who you are, to God you are loved. No matter how you've been created, no matter what you think about who you are, his humanness helps us discover that all of humanity matters, that each and every one of us is created for a purpose. And in essence, he shed his dignity so that we could discover ours. Tim Keller says this in closing, the heart of the unique message of the Bible is that the transcendent, immortal God came to earth himself and became weak vulnerable to suffering and death. He did this all for us, all to atone for our sin, to take the punishment we deserved. If it is true, it is the most astonishing and radical act of self-giving and loving sacrifice that can be imagined. And as John put it, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray.